Hello and welcome to the Military Archives podcast. In this episode, I'll be discussing the efforts of Eamon de Valera to establish an anti-treaty counter-archive in the 1920s. I'm Commandant Daniel Iotis, the officer in charge of the Military Archives, and thank you for joining me. For students of archivistics, the Irish Military Archives is an excellent case study of the development of a state archive from its inception and within a discrete time period. The objectives described in the 1925 draft proposed establishment of the Military Archives, which aimed to put a formal structure on what had been operating on a more ad hoc basis since the previous year, remained familiar to the modern archivist today. According to a contemporary memorandum, these were, firstly, the national duty incumbent upon the military authorities to ensure the safe custody, scientific arrangement and proper housing of state documents of military importance and usefulness. Two, the general usefulness of the military data contained in such documents, both to the military authorities of this and subsequent generations. Three, the value of such documents in determining are helping to determine the value of certain claims upon the state, and this would particularly apply to pensions applications. And finally, the value of such documents as part of the foundation of national history and the compilation of official histories, diaries and reviews. Now, under the coming the nail government of the 1920s, the Minister for Defence was proving evasive regarding the Chief of Staff's repeated requests for the military archives to be established formally and officially. However, during 1925, the anti-treatyites of Sinn Féin, under Raymond de Valera, were busy trying to establish an archive of their own. The efforts of the anti-treatyites to secure material for their own archives and the reaction of the army demonstrate the power of archives and their importance to both sides of the civil war divide for establishing legitimacy and vouchsafing lineage and identity. For this reason, de Valera's motivations are as worthy of examination as those of Colonel M.J. Costello and civilian clerk Mr. Thomas Galvin, two of the men primarily responsible for the establishment and working of the military archives within Army Intelligence Branch. This subject was one very close to de Valera's heart. In 1924, while imprisoned in Arbor Hill, he had suggested to his secretary, Kathleen O'Connell, that she should assemble a documentary history of the revolutionary period from the 1916 Easter Rising up until the end of the Civil War. And as a token of his conviction, de Valera provided O'Connell with a 25-page set of instructions on how and where she could source the necessary information for its compilation, mirroring in some ways what Galvin had produced for Costello. Now this was an ambition that Dorothy McArdle would eventually fulfil through her book The Irish Republic, undertaken at de Valera's request in 1925, taking 11 years to complete. Now more than this, David McCullough's 2017 biography of de Valera suggests a man deeply concerned with controlling narratives and perceptions, something towards which he was naturally orientated and which he was adept as someone who inspired a cult of personality, a personality that had, quote, marked him out for advancement by his superiors within the volunteers. Upon his release from prison in 1924, de Valera had immediately assumed chairmanship of meetings of Coral and the Jack D an alternative parliament made of anti-treaty members of the Second Doyle, who believed themselves to be the legitimate Republican government through their lineage to that Doyle. An alternative parliament, by necessity, requires an alternative claim to legitimacy and accompanying historiography. And McCullough notes that Mary McSweeney, 
who had played a key organisational role within Sinn Féin during de Valera's imprisonment and later took over as party leader in 1927, was suspicious of de Valera's tendency towards political revisionism. Now, during 1924, de Valera had begun, for example, to publicly claim that he would never have signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty until the issue of, of partition was settled. And this was described as a gross distortion of his position in 1921 by McCullough. Now, de Valera was also obsessed with the press and unsuccessfully attempted to attain the defunct Freeman's journal. Now, he would go on to fulfil this ambition through the establishment of the Irish press in 1931. And even when he founded Fianna Fáil in 1926, McCullough notes, it was a name chosen deliberately to imply a lineage back to the Irish volunteers and more, representing a tradition that went back much further than its own establishment. Now, in October 1925, a raid took home, a raid took place on the home of Pierce Beasley, at that point retired from the army, and who was working on his biography of Michael Collins. A report from the Eastern Command Intelligence Officer notes that the raid was carried out at the instrumentality of Chadwick, 6th Battalion, Irregulars, and that it had been carried out by men from Dunleary, among which Eugene Davis was named specifically. The raid was carried out as it was believed that Beasley had in his possession many documents to be used in the publishing of his book that would have been damaging to the anti-treaty cause. On the 5th of October 1925, Commandant Brennan Whitmore wrote to Colonel Costello a letter with an attached account from Thomas Galvin, suggesting that the anti-treaty forces were attempting to establish an archive for their own purposes. That these two handwritten documents give an important insight into both sides' understanding of the power of the archive as a tool of bureaucratic evidence, hegemonic expression, legitimacy and authority. Brennan Whitmore's note read as follows. Sir, reference attached. This was first told to me in confidence by Mr Galvin, and I instructed him to put it in writing. I do not know what value you may be inclined to place upon it, but I am inclined to place a rather high value on it. It appears that the anti-treatyites are working hard on the archives from their point of view, whereas we seem to be resting largely on our own. The quote, unimpeachable source Galvin refers to is Mrs Griffiths. He doesn't know the secret channel beyond the fact that he is a businessman. Yours obediently, WJBW. And Galvin's report is interesting and read as follows. Akara. I learned yesterday from an unimpeachable source that Mr. De Valera is making a collection of state papers. He recently approached the secret channel used by the late President Griffith for the transmission of letters to the British government and endeavoured to obtain from him a full statement of the negotiations and information as to any documents he had in his possession. I am informed that Mr. De Valera obtained nothing from this source. I am informed from the same source that J.J. O'Kelly Skellig sits in a room overhead the shop at Gills Publishers at 50 Upper O'Connell Street, Dublin, and is there engaged writing what appears to be a record of certain transactions. He has collected a mass of papers and documents. These include the files of the Catholic Bulletin containing his own articles on Easter week, which I understand he's to publish in book form. He also has a file of nationality. I also learned from the same source that when the secret channel was in London 12 months ago, the then Premier, Mr Ramsay MacDonald, sent for him to Downing Street and there entrusted to him a sealed letter to be delivered to Mr De Valera's own hands. The secret channel arrived in Dublin, proceeded to Suffolk Street to the Sinn Féin offices and with great difficulty was admitted to Mr De Valera's room. 
and Mr. De Valera was very suspicious and refused to take the packet. He sent for Austin Stack, and then they both signed a receipt, which the secret channel took back to Mr. Ramsey MacDonald, who quitted office a few weeks later. The receipt was a form provided by him, Ramsey MacDonald, to be taken back to him by the secret channel. Lamas Moore, Tomas O'Galvon. Now, in his Bureau of Military History witness statement given in 1956, J.J. O'Kelly, who had been a prominent member of the Gaelic League and deputy chairman of the First Dáil Éireann in 1919, expressed his own opinion on the status of the material on which he was working referred to in Galvin's letter, stating that, quote, there could be no more useful sources of information than the numbers of the Catholic Bulletin from which, from the founding of the Irish Volunteers until the debate of the Articles of, of Agreement for a Treaty. As editor, I went to the greatest trouble to get details from persons who had themselves taken part in the rising at the different posts in the city, and I had then carefully checked to ensure that they were correct in every detail so that the castle authorities could not accuse us of exaggeration or misrepresentation. In his statement, he also described how, quote, since long before the rising, Gills was a clearinghouse for everybody connected with the national movement. Now, for all of this, it is clear that the Sinn Féin efforts to create their own archive and thus exercise control over its narrative and public perceptions were no less serious than the armies. It had the pedigree, the credentials, and where necessary, where necessary, the ruthlessness to use the IRA to make it happen, as we saw in the example of Beasley. And this episode illustrates both sides' appreciation of the fundamental role that archives play in establishing and maintaining the legitimacy and lineage of a state. Now, for archivists in particular, the implications are noteworthy. And considering the history and development of the military archives in its early days, it is worth examining, um, worth examining it through the lens of the archivist Terry Cook and his ideas about the shifting archival paradigms of the past century and a half. Now, Cook made the case that during this time, quote, the archivist has been transformed accordingly from passive curator to active appraiser to societal mediator to community facilitator. The focus of archival thinking has moved from evidence to memory to identity and community as the broader intellectual currents have changed from pre-modern to modern to post-modern to contemporary. Now, the records from the formative years of the military archives illustrate the transition from this era of the passive curator of juridical legacy to the active appraiser of cultural memory. And the most symbolic and dramatic event marking this transition was, I think, the destruction of the public record office during the siege of the Four Courts at the outbreak of the Civil War in 1922. The literal destruction of the institutional embodiment of the first paradigm in some ways. And the early history of the military archives demonstrates a very deliberate and conscious effort to actively collect and commission material documenting the history of the new army and its role in the foundation of the new state since the foundation of its predecessor organisation, the Irish Volunteers. As Cook described it, quote, seen variously as historian archivists or handmaidens of historians, the archivist in this second paradigm discerned appraisal values primarily through the trends in historical writing and then acquired records as archives to reflect or reinforce those historiographical patterns. In and of themselves, the motivations of the anti-treatyites to establish their own archive were no different. Compared, contrasted and contextualised by the efforts of the quote official side to establish the military archives, we are presented with a case study of what many prominent archival academics would describe as the role of archives as sources of bureaucratic power and legitimacy, as well as their presentation as contested spaces. 
and it is only in recent decades that the archival profession has changed its perspective, away from seeing the archive as, quote, an institution that systematically promotes, preserves, and makes accessible memory, culture, and identity in the form of bureaucratic and social evidence, and recognizing that it is, uh, and can be, a contested political space associated with the promotion of asymmetrical power and the omission or silencing of alternative narratives. Now, Norbert de Valera's efforts are unusual or unique. Contemporary archival research has shown that the impetus to create imagined and post hoc documentation where the state has failed to be a generally applicable one and not just specific to Ireland. This is especially so in cases of politicised record keeping, where there are discrepancies between official records and the gamut of human experiences typical of civil war, particularly on the part of the losers or victims. Now, people in such circumstances, the research has shown time and time again, want their story told. And the focus on stories reminds us that much of what is absent from records is filled in social contexts through personal narrative. Ernie O'Malley and Duncan McGowan were two prominent individuals who illustrated this point, collecting the personal narratives of many people who took the anti-treaty side. Through the vehicle of the Bureau of Military History, described by Dr. Eve Morrison as a cultural initiative of the new, newly independent state to establish the bona fides of its claim to nationhood and as a symbol of Republican reconciliation, the Irish state itself would provide the most significant exemplar of this tendency. In fact, the most important archival sources that exist on the formative years of the modern Irish state, the Bureau of Military History and the Military Service 1916-1923 pensions collection consist primarily of post hoc personal testimony. And that finishes the podcast for now. Um, hopefully I'll be doing a couple more podcasts with little interesting uh, episodes from the early years of the military archives in podcasts to follow. But thanks for listening. I hope you found it interesting and enjoyable. And until next time, take care. <laughs>